0: My name is Nadine Pequeniza. I'm the director and producer of Last of the Right Whales, a new feature documentary about a critically endangered great whale, uh, the North Atlantic right whale. And I made the film because in 2017, there were 17 whales that disappeared. And with only a few hundred remaining, it, uh, it's, a critical, it's a critical situation for a whale that is facing extinction. <laughs>
1: Welcome to Scanna, a podcast about oceans, ecoethics, and the environment for fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. I'm Mark Lerner-Young, author of two new books about sharks, Sharks Forever and Big Sharks, Small World, a shark book for babies. And today's guest is Nadine Pequeniza, the filmmaker behind the powerful award-winning documentary, Last of the Right Whales. And our sponsor for this episode, Me. See, I'm running for municipal council in Saanich, British Columbia. The election is October 15th, and if you're in Saanich, you can vote for me, or put up a sign, or volunteer, or do all of the above. If you're anywhere in BC, you can donate to my campaign, and if you're anywhere at all, you can amplify my reach on social media. Working on environmental issues, I know how important it is to think locally, so that's what I'm doing. You can find out more about my campaign at www.mlysaanich.com. And as annoying as it is, you actually need that www. It's a security thing. As always, Scan exists because of the generous support of our Patreon patrons. So if you like what you're listening to and want to hear more amazing ocean stories, please support us at patreon.com. Our patrons do get all sorts of perks, including sneak peeks at our ocean related projects. Also, please check out our companion podcast, Orca Bites, for shorter bite sized pieces about oceans, ecoethics, and the environment. And now, Nadine Pequeniza on Accidental Entanglements, Epic Breaches, and What's Going Wrong for Right Whales. Thank you so much for doing this. I know we've been trying to line this up forever, and the documentary is... Wonderful, and I want to kick off with a question that I ask kind of everybody who has met whales. Do you remember the first time you saw a whale? <laughs> uh,
0: it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't a childhood memory because I think the first time I saw a whale, I was in my twenties and I was traveling and I was in uh, Mexico. So it was a gray whale off the Baja Peninsula, and they were actually quite close to the boat um, and one actually swam right under the boat. And I was just. uh, It's magical, you know, when you see whales for the first time, Um, and it wasn't something that I was planning to do. I was on a trip and I was traveling uh, with a friend and. it was a, it was a possibility. And so we went and um, yeah. And then I started, you know, looking for whales wherever I traveled, you know, so saw them later in Argentina, in Sri Lanka, um, in Canada, of course. And so, yeah, I, I sort of got the bug.
1: Do you remember the first time you saw a right whale? Because that's so exotic getting to see a right whale. I'm so jealous.
0: Ah, uh, Well, the only reason I saw a right whale is because I was making this film. They're so rare, uh, and for that, and there's protection measures in place. So, you know, it makes it difficult for whale watching tours to actually show them uh, to people. And I think one of the reasons it was so important to make this film is because they're such a rarity, um, and it's such a privilege to be able to see them. And if we really want to protect these whales, people have to fall in love with them, and you can't do that unless you see. Uh, these majestic creatures. So, the first time I saw a, white, a bright whale was making this film.
1: Now, you just raised something that is really dear to my heart in terms of, in order to save these whales, we've got to love them. And I was so happy that you use names and not numbers whenever possible. Can you talk a little bit about that and that choice and going with names over numbers?
0: yeah so the whales are the stars of the film you know they share the screen with the human uh, participants that are in the film and it was important for me that people connected uh, to the animals on an individual basis and they really are individuals they're they're all catalogued numbered and many of them named by the scientists who work with them Uh, and they've been working with them for decades and so They're actually, they know genetic lines from, you know, grandmothers to calves to grand calves. They've followed uh, these histories and they all have stories, you know, whether it's um, unique events that distinguish them, like the mom-calf pair we followed that traveled into the Gulf of Mexico, that's very unusual. There's only a handful of mom-calf pairs that have ever done that. And we happen to feature one of them in the film and followed their lives over two years and unbeknownst to us I mean there's no way we could have predicted the future but what happened to that pair is really uh, illustrative of what's happening to the entire species and so by knowing snow cone and her calf uh, people really can come to understand what uh, what's facing this species and how dire the situation is and what we have to do to to correct it. Did you come away with a favorite right
1: whale? Who was your favorite?
0: Uh, you know, Snowcone and Chimenea. So Chimenea is Snowcone's sister who showed up the next calving season with her own calf. And um, having filmed both of them interacting with their calves, I just, uh, I found them to be so tactile and playful with their calves, uh, literally, you know, rolling them off of their rostrum, the tip of their nose or coming up under them and lifting them out of the water. I, 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 just, I just love watching them interacting with their calves. And so I, I think that's what sort of endeared them to me.
1: Now, every single person I know who spent any real time around the orcas has a story about them doing something or intuiting something that seems pretty much fictionally implausible. And yet you tell this to other whale people and they go, that's just whales. And it doesn't matter how serious the scientists are. And they're almost shy about sharing these stories. And I'm wondering, did you run into any of these stories where they're like, how did they know how to do that? Or how did that happen moments?
0: Yeah, I mean, the what comes to mind immediately is Moira Brown, who's in the film. Uh, you know, she works with a Campobello whale rescue team disentangling whales. And she told a story about freeing a right whale and immediately afterward, it just breached right out of the water. Um, and she interpreted that as a thank you, you know? so, So definitely, I think, people who spend time, especially that amount of time, start to interpret their behaviors um, or to give them meaning. And uh, it's hard not to do that when you, when you observe them uh, as much as these scientists do. Because I, I started to do it after two years on the water, you know? So I can just imagine after decades uh, what you would start to intuit.
1: Very early on when I started interviewing ORCA researchers, the the top scientists went, I'm done apologizing for anthropomorphizing. I do not know what else to compare these animals to besides us. Like just they were they were just over the whole idea that anthropomorphizing was a bad thing to do. And I've become kind of obsessed with Franz DeWaal's term anthropodenial, denying the <laughs> you know, going denying that animals have the same Feelings, thoughts, emotions. Now, who is who comes up with the names? Is it like one particular set of researchers who work with the right whales who comes up with the names?
0: There's a very there's a very elaborate policy (laughs) to naming right whales, Um, and so it's the consortium, the North Atlantic Right Whale Consortium, that's run out of the New England Aquarium, and um, it's a different sort of jury of scientists that uh, sit around and deliberate over names Uh, each year a handful are picked to be named but it has to be done through agreement on whoever is sitting on that jury at the time and a whale cannot be named it's typically named after the callosity pattern on their rostrum so the callus skin it's like a fingerprint so each is individual to a whale so usually the scientists will try and pick a name that is a nod to whatever features or outline they see on the head, which is why snow cone is snow cone. You know, if you look carefully at a rostrum, you can see, you know, a single scoop of ice cream and the cone, or they can be given a name that is uh, recollects a particular behavior that made them stand out. So for example, snow cone going into the Gulf of Mexico, she could have been named um, something for that unique behavior. So yes, there is a very strict protocol for naming whales, which is interesting that you bring this up because we're about to announce tomorrow. um, And since you'll be going live after that, uh, one of the whales in the film, so 4615, the young male, the five-year-old who is entangled at the end of the film, uh, they're going to name him this year. And so we're asking people who watch the film to suggest names that we can take to the consortium. uh, So you'll have the possibility of naming that young male. Uh, So that's going to be on the website as of tomorrow, February 16th, And uh, we'll be sharing our favorite names with the, the public through our social media so people can vote on which name will be put forward to the consortium for the scientists to deliberate
1: that is so exciting. Also, I love the word consortium. That just that just sounds so businesslike, right? That that's so unscientific to my mind. You know, it sounds like they're buying and selling the whales.
0: I guess it could have that connotation. It's not meant to, but uh, but yeah, no, it's a great group. They meet every every year uh, and share and discuss all of their research. It's actually the North Atlantic right whale is probably the most studied whale on the planet. And so scientists are really trying to find out, you know, as much as they possibly can in order to protect the species. And uh, it's very interesting, the work that's being done and the, and the collaboration that goes on between scientists, not just with the North Atlantic right whale, but sometimes they, they see benefit in comparing and contrasting with the Southern right whale, which is in the film. You know, talking about how that species, very close but a different species, is uh, is faring much better than the North Atlantic right whale, and it has a lot to do with environment.
1: Can you talk a bit about the experience of watching a breach?
0: Yeah, it was it was really hard to get on film. <laughs> that's that's really what comes to mind. But we actually filmed that breach that you see because North Atlantic right whales are not like humpbacks. They're not breaching all the time. It's, you know, it's fairly rare in comparison uh, to a humpback. So to capture that on film was was really something. Uh, We spent a long time sitting on the beach trying to capture that. So that happened just off uh, off the beach in Provincetown. And um, there's an area there where it's quite a drop off. And so there's a lot with the tides, there's a lot of copepods or plankton in the area, so it becomes a good feeding ground for the whales. and um, And, yeah, that's where they were breaching that day. And so we are watching. We watched a number of them, but we only caught one on film. and uh, and that's the one that you see in the in the movie. But um, you never know where they're going to come up, you know. So (laughs) having your lens in the right place at the right time is is not easy. Oh, I I can so relate to that one.
1: Now, there's something I wanted to get into because you're talking about the plankton. And when I was writing about orcas, weirdly, the thing that I had... The hardest time wrapping my head around was even the concept of baleen whales and the idea of filter feeding. I'm guessing you spent so much time around these right whales that you can explain what they eat and how. Because the whole concept of baleen feeding, I've, I always have a hard time wrapping my head around because these things are such giants and they eat yeah. tiny, tiny, tiny things.
0: Yeah, minuscule, minuscule, like the size of, a, you know, a grain of rice. Um, it's, really, it's really amazing that they can survive on these tiny little creatures, but they're so rich in lipids, you know, in oils that gives them that energy. And that's why they're really after a very particular kind of zooplankton called a copepod, or even within that species, Calanus is, is their preferred type of copepod. And so they are just experts at seeking this out, um, which is what has led them into the Gulf of St. Lawrence. But we can get onto that later, I won't go off track. So to filter feed, I mean, what we filmed in Cape Cod Bay, where they skim feed, it's really the best look that you'll get at filter feeding um, for baleen whales because they do it right at the surface. And so it's not often that you get to look into the mouth of a 60 ton animal, uh, you know, and actually see all of the baleen plates, you can see their tongue. Uh, It's just, it was incredible. And that, to me, that's where I really understood the physiology of the whale, because, you know, the North Atlantic right whale has a very odd, kind of face it's it's sort of got a downturned mouth its eyes are at the bottom of the corners of its mouth so sort of toward the bottom of its body uh so it's very odd it takes a little while for you to orient yourself but it's when you see that mouth open and close and the eye where it is because we were filming and the whales had their mouths wide open they rolled over on their side you could see the eye and the whole structure of the face that way so that's where I really understood it. But it's really, it's about them cruising through the water, not too quickly, you know, two knots, uh, mouth wide open. They're taking in all of that plankton and water and then expelling it and filtering uh, the plankton. So, so they're keeping those copepods uh, to eat and expelling the water. But it's just, it's it's really incredible to watch.
1: That sounds so amazing. Uh Now, one of the reasons that I kind of obsess over the names versus number things is I feel the numbers are often used to distance us emotionally from the whales. And I find scientific phrasing is often used to distance us from what's going on. And there was a phrase that you used, unusual mortality event, which just does not sound all that dire. Can you explain the unusual mortality event facing these whales.
0: Sure. When did I
1: say that? Did I say this, that in our no, this was, interview? I, no, it wasn't your phrasing. It was oh. I think it was the Department of Fisheries and Oceans was instead of saying you know that everything's dire and dangerous and horrible, it became an unusual mortality event. And like it was yeah. I'm pretty sure it was it was DFO.
0: Well, I I have been guilty of adopting that phrase. So, you know, scientists are never ones to over, uh, you know, they're not hyperbolic. (laughs) They want to be exact. Um, They don't overstate things. They're always cautious, uh, even in in reviewing their own data. Um, And I guess that's part of being a scientist. So unusual mortality event is when a lot of whales die more than usual. (laughs) It's <laughs> basically what it means. Uh, and they were talking about the 17 North Atlantic right whales that died in one year in 2017. And 12 of them uh, were found in Canadian waters. And so that's what drew me to this story. Um, it's the first time that I understood the plight of North Atlantic right whales. Uh, it's the first time that I understood how culpable we are in their demise. And so It made me want to tell the story, that event. Can
1: you talk about how culpable we are in that demise? Because like one of the things that I've seen in the right whale, in the right whale protocols is a lot of, uh, what's the phrase for it? Basically, we get the federal government announces regulations, but they're more like guidelines. And I'm going, okay, guideline is not the same as a law. A guideline is not enforceable, and it feels like there's a fair bit of smoke and mirrors in terms of what we say we're doing to protect these animals and what we're really doing. Because if you're just saying, yes, you shouldn't do this, self-regulating, you know, self-regulating has worked so well in other industries like mining, and yet I feel like we default to self-regulation for a lot of the things on the ocean that are causing the demise of these amazing animals.
0: Well, after 2017, there were regulations put in place that are not voluntary. It's not self-regulation. They're hard and fast laws. So there were a lot of closures. And Martin Noel, the crab fisherman that's in the film, talks about that. So a large part of the Gulf of St. Lawrence is closed to fishing every year when the when the whales come to feed there. So you know from April on, those areas where they're known to be, or at least known within recent years, there's strict closures there. So fishing is off limits. Um, So that takes away that uh, risk of having the line, the vertical line in the water. And then there were speed restrictions and are speed restrictions in place. Again, they're seasonal, depending on when the whales are there. Um, There is a voluntary aspect to it, though, like not all of the areas are uh, mandated speed restrictions. So in some places it's voluntary. And the other thing, and this is more in the United States because Canada has addressed this, but smaller vessels like the vessel um, that killed Snowcone's calf are not required to adhere to these limitations. So to travel under 10 knots. Um, that's the case in the United States. Recently in Canada, it was made applicable to any vessel um, over 13 meters. So, you know, smaller fishing charters, yachts, they now have to respect those speed restrictions. So there have been real laws, put enforceable laws put in place. Um, and for the most part, compliance has been good. Uh, in terms of ships slowing down and respecting the speed restrictions, and certainly with fishermen uh, staying out of those zones when they're closed.
1: Now, are fines and penalties actually being enforced and implemented? Because I feel like the first we really saw of that in BC with uh, the Orcas and, and around uh, fish farms was under Bernadette Jordan. Like She seemed to be the first minister who actually enforced any of the laws in the books. And the first time I actually saw any fines that looked remotely significant. And I'm wondering, are the fines penalties actually being enforced? Are people losing their licenses? Are people seeing fines that are more than the equivalent of a speeding ticket?
0: Yeah, no, the licenses aren't being revoked as far as I know, it's a monetary fine. And I think it's in the neighborhood of $6,000 which you know is not a huge amount of money for a big shipping company but DFO is putting out or sorry Transport Canada is putting out uh, reports on compliance and you know there are some there's been some dispute Oceana has questioned their numbers Um, but According to DFO, the compliance is quite high. I can't remember exactly what it is, but I think it's upwards of 80%. There are exceptions made when uh, there's bad weather conditions because it becomes dangerous for a ship to travel under a certain speed. Um, So they were saying that's what Oceana wasn't taking into account when they were doing, because people are looking at AIS records and and, uh, ship routing and and figuring out the speeds on their own anybody can do that although it's not as exact as some of the data that uh, transport canada is privy to but um, as far as i know uh, it is being enforced Um, whether or not this the fines are enough to force greater compliance i i I don't have the answer to that question who
1: is doing a better job of helping the whales out right now? Is it the Canadians or the Americans? Or is
0: it a mix of both? That's a very loaded question, Mark. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) If Um, if it's not clear, you don't want to, you know,
1: I don't want to get you in any trouble here.
0: Yeah, no, well, I'll tell you what. So, you know, we're working with a number of um, organizations on an impact campaign in the rollout of the film. And so I'll tell you what, you know, through that research and the work with them, what I've heard is that Canada reacted much more quickly to put in place uh, protection measures than the United States has, Um, although a lot of protections have been in place in certain areas in the United States for a very long time. So, for example, in the calving ground, there is no fixed gear fishing, like it's just not permitted at all. Cape Cod Bay is another protected area. When the whales are there, there's no fishing there. And so in certain areas, the United States has done a very good job of putting in place protections. In other areas like the speed restrictions for smaller boats, they haven't managed to do that. And it's one of the reasons that three calves were killed uh, by boat collisions while we were making the film, you know, during those, uh, two and a half years so you know there's improvement to be had on both sides in Canada there's a lot of lost gear um, that is in the Gulf of St. Lawrence and the entanglement that we filmed at the end that young five-year-old calf number 4615 who's yet to be named um, it's quite probable that his entanglement came from lost gear because when we were in that area the fishing was closed There were no no buoys that we saw at the surface. Um, And we know that whale was gear-free four hours before we filmed him entangled uh, because the scientists had photographed him gear-free. So if we didn't see anything at the surface, where did he pick up that gear, you know? So there's, there's things that we can do with lost gear if that is presenting a risk for the whales. And also with the, you know, implementation of the ropeless gear right now, they're testing. Uh, they've been testing for four years, but it's not being used commercially yet.
1: Now, when you talk about that last gear, there was a stat that you throw in this movie that just floored and horrified me that 85% of these right whales have been entangled at least once. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that because that that's truly mind-blowing.
0: I know it's astonishing, isn't it? And, and you can see it when you're out there. I mean, all of those white marks on their body, that's scar, that's scar tissue, you know? Um, yeah. And then it's what I find mind boggling is then there are fishermen who don't believe that the gear they're putting in the water is a risk to the whales And so those two pieces of information just don't compute, you know. Clearly, there's a problem with the amount of rope uh, that we're putting into the water. For different types of fisheries, you know, it can be for lobster, it can be for crab. uh, It can be in Canada or the United States. It can be inshore or offshore. We have to acknowledge the fact just based on the scarring that clearly, it's a problem.
1: Can you talk a little bit about these whales being in sort of the wrong place, like going into areas that we're not used to seeing them and that they don't know as well?
0: Yeah, I have a hard time saying anywhere in the ocean is the wrong place for a marine. Oh no, but, <laughs> but it, mammal. But... but in terms of
1: it, like all of, but they've all got their traditional feeding grounds, and you were talking about how they're. Showing up in areas we haven't seen them show up in, yeah,
0: unexpected. which may mean
1: that they did, yeah, which may mean they were there thousands of years ago before we were, but you know we're seeing this with the orcas out here, where the orcas who were known as residents are now going, yeah, we're no longer resident of here, yeah, we're we're going further afield, and you've talked about that with the right whales, where the right whales are just showing up places that humans are not used to encountering right whales
0: yeah no that's exactly what's happening and it's because of climate change you know climate change is is altering the distribution of their food and so with the changing ocean currents you know, copepods they come from the arctic um, and they travel in on a current but now with the gulf stream is moving further north and actually cutting off that supply um, to where they used to go in the roseway basin the gulf of maine and bay of fundy and that's why they're now going further north to find that food. And so that's why they're popping up in places where we're not used to seeing them, at least in modern times. And so the reaction to that uh, was slow. You know, scientists had been studying them coming to the Gulf of St. Lawrence since 2015, in large numbers, they had been coming there. Um, Now almost half of the population is coming into the Gulf of St. Lawrence each year to feed. And it took us, you know, it took us the deaths that happened in 2017 uh, before we put uh, protection measures in place. Now, this was one of the first
1: animal or even eco docs that I have seen in ages where the filmmaker is not center stage in some way. And I was wondering, did you ever consider being a character in this? I see you're shaking your head.
0: No, I, I don't feel that I had any place in this film. You know, I, 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 I have not studied these whales. I'm not a diver, you know, I don't, this is actually the first uh, wildlife film I've made. So it really wasn't why I came to this film or how I came to this film. You know, I, I really came to the subject matter in the same way that I think a lot of the audience will, and that is not knowing really much about North Atlantic right whales or their plight. And so that's sort of the lens that I brought to it. And much of my film work is really focused on social justice, human rights. Um, And I think I brought that lens to this. So it's a film about whales, but it's really a film about us, you know, and how we uh, treat our environment and how we see ourselves in the ecosystem, what our role and responsibility is. And so that's that's more the framing of this story. Um, yeah, so no, I never considered being in front of the camera.
1: Oh, I thought it was fascinating going back and looking at all the work you've made and going, wow, there's no other whale ducks. There's no, you know, you weren't out saving elephants or gorillas, you just, nope, going straight for right whales, which I thought was fantastic. That this... Yeah,
0: which is kind of after that experience, I realized that I probably went for the hardest wildlife film to make—you know—a critically endangered whale with only a few hundred left in the North Atlantic, which is not optimal for filming, as any, you know, seasoned uh, cinematographer will tell you. Oh, it so helps to not know
1: what's impossible till after you've done it. We never would have pitched a movie on Granny the 100-Year-Old Whale if we'd known before we went out to shoot that there was almost no footage of her. We just assumed (laughs) that because she'd been around 100 years, there'd be tons and tons of footage. And if we hadn't had one magic amazing day, I don't know how we would have done a movie.
0: Yeah.
1: Right? So...
0: Yeah, no, it's exa- it was exactly the same for us. There were so many obstacles and so many things that could have just completely tanked us, but um, perseverance and luck, you know?
1: Now, there was, I thought it was fascinating that Nick Hawkins was the first person who was ever allowed to use a subsurface vehicle to photograph whales from underwater. Did this happen because of your film? Did your film happen because of this, or was that just magic?
0: No, it was it was exactly was the the latter. So the film happened because well, no, I shouldn't say that. That was the initial approach to the film. So the film happened because of the deaths in 2017. I thought I want to make a film about this. I want to you know share this story, raise awareness, and uh, then I started looking for a way into it that would be accessible for people, and that's when I found Nick, um, who was doing his own uh, photography at the time. And then it turned into cinematography. So he was doing both stills and and moving image. And he really wanted to capture those underwater images. So he had he was on that uh, process, He he had started that project, and I approached him about filming him on that quest. And so that's how I got started uh, with the film, and then it expanded, uh, you know, to go to the different habitats and film other people working with right whales in a different way, you know, from a different perspective. So we started to get the whale rescuers, the scientists, the fishermen, and combined all of those perspectives. But yeah, Nick, Nick was um, Nick was well on his way uh, to getting his permit. Building his ROV, you know, he'd bought his boat, and he was going to get those images.
1: Wow! Can you tell me about Hit Play? Is that just your company for your stuff, or is that because it looks very posh online in terms of your <laughs> mandate and what you're up to? And I'm like, it feels like a. Uh, like reading about it, it sort of feels like that company that does all the amazing work out of the states that all the George Clooney movies come out of it. So, so I was just wondering, like, what that's about, or is that just your, or is that just your company for doing cool
0: things? It's just my company for doing hopefully cool things. And if you're comparing us to Participant Media, I'm very thankful for that. But I, we're we're definitely a far cry from that. So, so yeah, but that's same. Same ideology, you know, same value system, I would say much smaller budgets, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's, that's the work I want to do. That's why I became a journalist first and then a filmmaker. And that's what I aspire to do with every film. So this is actually you know, the third impact campaign that I've run with my films, the next film I'm developing has an impact campaign that we've already started planning before we've even started principal photography. So that's really, you know, what I hope to do the tagline about seeing yourself in the world differently, I really believe that and I think film has the ability to do that uh, better than any other art form. And so that's what i that's what I try to do with each of my films.
1: Fantastic. And can you talk about the impact campaign for this and what you're trying to accomplish with that?
0: Yeah, so we started again. that was that was the idea from inception of the film. So over the course of producing, you often run into organizations that are working toward the cause uh, that has attracted you to the film. So you know we were coming across agencies like IFA and the Canadian Wildlife Federation, Pew Charitable Trusts um, came in as a supporter for the impact campaign, you know, Sierra Club, Canadian Whale Institute, Moira Brown, who's in the film, that's her organization. So, you know, these organizations are all working to protect the right whale. And it's seldom that you have so many good groups working together. So they were already collaborating because the situation is so grave for the species that I think it's really built momentum, you know, and collaboration amongst these groups, which you don't often see in the nonprofit community, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, And so it's actually perfect for an impact campaign because when you're doing a campaign with a film like this you want as many groups and networks as you can to bring attention to the film and then for them to use that as a tool to do the outreach and educational work that they do so it's there's a lot of reciprocity there you know it has to be a give and take and um and all of you working toward the same goal so that's what we're doing we're organizing. With the Canadian theatrical release, which is planned for World Whale Day, you know February 20th, we're having screenings across the country and all of these uh, groups that I just mentioned, they're working with us to set up panels. So when people go to see the film, they have folks that they can talk to who, who can tell them about you know what's going on with the whales what people are doing to try and improve the situation and what they can do more importantly because we want to get as many people involved as possible so i'll be at a number of those screenings other crew members people who were in the film and also you know all of the scientists the veterinarians who are performing the necropsies whale rescuers fishermen we're going to have someone at these theaters for you to talk to so that's that's the goal of the campaign. And then we'll be following up with a coastal tour. We're going to do something right from Florida up to the Gulf of St. Lawrence, following the whale migration with, um, you know, community screenings, same sort of panels. It's all about getting people um, to care about these whales and want, want to help protect them.
1: Fantastic. And that brings us to a perfect place to end this off. What do humans need to do?
0: Uh, Well, they need to encourage their governments to support uh, protections for right whales. So there's already a lot of regulations in place, which we talked about some of them, but there's more that can be done. And if fishermen are going to transform the way they fish, they need assistance to do that because the equipment, the pop-up gear is expensive. Uh, It means changing the way they fish. And so they need support to do that. And if, you know, people tell their governments that that's what they want to see happen. Hopefully they'll listen to us. Um, The other thing they can do is a simple survey. If you watch the film, we've created this five-minute survey. You can go in and answer it. It's on our website. And it's basically asking you, what are you willing to do to help the whales? And these advocacy organizations can use that information in the work that they're doing when they're talking to uh decision makers and politicians uh about you know changes that they think there's public support for um so those are two simple things and then just getting to know the whales you know getting to appreciate them as individuals and you know maybe naming a whale if if you're so inclined
1: i love that thank you so much for doing this and congratulations on the movie it really is wonderful
0: thank you mark i appreciate the conversation all right, take care. We'll see you next time. Bye.
1: Bye-bye. Thanks again for checking out Scanna. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss upcoming interviews with some of the world's top shark experts. I'd like to thank all our Patreon patrons, including Robert Anderson, Simon McNair, Darren Larian-Young, Philip Ashdown, Kayla, Susie Venuda, Glenda McFarlane, Solomon Siegel, Howie Siegel, and Yosef Wask. Scan is also brought to you by Orca Publishing, publishers of my three books about whales for younger readers, Orcas of the Salish Sea, Big Whale, Small World, and Orcas Everywhere, and my two new shark books, Sharks Forever and Big Sharks, Small World. Also, our friends at Eagle Wing Whale and Wildlife Tours, Canada's first 100% carbon neutral whale watching company, and the first to support the 1% for the Planet initiative. Be sure to check out our show notes at Scanna.org and subscribe to our Scana magazine on Medium, which features material from several of our guests, including Alexandra Morton, Paul Watson, and Julia Barnes. So please follow us on social media, share the show with your friends, share it with everyone. Reviews on your favorite podcast provider are always appreciated. If this podcast didn't work for you, I'm Conan O'Brien, and this is Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. Scan is produced in Saanich, B.C. territories the was Sanic, Songhees, and Esquimalt peoples by the always-awesome Rain Banu. Our brilliant new audio boss is Bug Lewis, the Scanna site, and so much more, courtesy of our Wizard of Web, Katie Brown. Scanna's theme, Scanna, is by Leah Abramson. <coughs>